0: As I dove into this case, deeper than I ever had before, which included listening to the tapes in their entirety for the first time, one thought kept swirling around in my mind. And that thought was that there's simply no way that Gacy's victim count stops at 33. What became apparent to both Darren and I as we dug in is that once Gacy was arrested, and even more significant, when the creep started to talk the investigation into Gacy, for all intents and purposes, stopped. Now, the identification of the victim's aspect didn't stop, and that was a time-consuming endeavor, which the Cook County Sheriff's Police spent a majority of their time focusing on, and that was absolutely necessary. But the more they began to uncover, not just the police, but the media, regarding the time frames in which the killings were thought to have occurred, and the possibility that he had multiple accomplices, the fact that he was traveling around the Midwest all of the time, and the fact that he is thought to have killed his first victim, Tim McCoy, in 1972. And then, has Carol and the gang move into the house for four years? And the narrative is that he killed only two young men during that time frame, Just doesn't fit. You've heard the portions of the tape where you hear the creep say, how do I know I didn't kill 100? You've heard him talk about, how do I know that I wasn't doing this when I was traveling? And we have those same questions. I asked Bill Kunkel about the work records that Gacy claims that he had that would indicate exactly where he was.
1: Uh, I mean, the first discussion I had with him is, I said, well, you know, I don't know what you actually have. I said, I suspect that you got it from Gacy at the joint, uh, or copies. Uh... But uh, who knows what where they came from? Because I'll tell you, here's why. All of the records. He was a pack, Gacy was a pack rat. Up in the attic, I mean, we they fought, we found all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, the, uh, his family Bible with some key passages underlined uh, in red. Uh, his con- confirmation Bible, by the way. Uh, the uh, idolaters and blasphemers and the abusers of themselves with mankind shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, to me, that's a pretty serious admission by a good Polish Catholic lad. But in any event, there's all kinds of stuff like that. There's the chapter 38, the old big thick ones, not the annotated, where he's got all the sexually dangerous person stuff underlined in the same red uh there's the book that there was a picture of the uh, trial I think of uh, a pretty boys must die in the attic insulation uh, paperback book uh, you know and so on 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 and on all every onion skin gasoline receipt ever you know uh, and all kinds of stuff up in the attic in boxes all right plus all the stuff that was in the office downstairs on what was supposed to be the dining room. So all that stuff we had, of course. And I had two uh, guys that were uh, investigators for the state's attorney's office. Now, it's different with each state's attorney, and some patterns exist more with one party than another, but uh, it runs the gamut. Uh, there, there have been state's attorneys that got all their investigators by having the sheriff assign people to him. Uh, There's state attorneys who wanted to hire, uh, I don't think ever, all their investigators, but a good percentage of them on their own uh, by recruiting ex-FBI agents, postal inspectors, uh, detectives, retired detectives, blah, 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 or some combination of both. Uh, And this was under Bernie Carey, and he had hired a number of investigators as well as having Uh, sheriff's policemen uh, investigators assigned from the sheriff's office, for example Greg Biddle and and Joe Hine uh, and others Uh, but also had hired individuals and I can't remember the one guy's name but the other guy I think he had been a postal inspector was um... I'm going to forget it again uh Cow or something like that, or I can't remember. Damn it! Anyway, the, these two older guys—they were one was a retired FBI agent, and one was a retired postal inspector. And they, we put them in, a, in their own office in the administration building, and they got all the stuff, every piece of paper from the house, including all the business records, and they went through everything. And the bottom line was they came to me when they were done with whatever the known number of dates of disappearance were, 24 at the time, I think, Uh, with every document they could find tying Gacy to the Chicago area on on or about that date, and some would be 10 to 12 Separate documents that absolutely nailed him three days, plus or minus the day of disappearance, you know, or whatever. That would be the best case. Worst case was one document. No cases was there nothing of the knowns. Now, unknowns, who knows, you know. I uh, don't know the date, so we can't hardly tell you. But anyway, that that was in my cart and ready for cross-examination if necessary. Because we knew that was one of his favorite defense stories, albeit not true. And so when this guy Ryan and I talked on the phone, I had him give me each date and individual that he claimed to be one of these ones that was problematic. And it turns out that as to each and every one of them, they're in a classification where nobody knew exactly when they were killed. Okay, so was he on a business trip plus or minus three days for an unknown length of time to a particular date that was chosen arbitrarily for an unidentified victim Uh, or a date for a known victim but one who was seen leaving home on such and such a date and hadn't been heard from for months? You know, so no one knows when they were killed. Yeah, there's a listed date for what the police report of a missing person said, but that might be a month or two months after they left or disappeared. You know, so one by one, you know, each of his so-called eight problems basically disappeared.
0: The defense wasn't focused on finding more victims. I mean... Why in the hell would they want to do that? No, they were attempting to validate the creeps' claims that he couldn't have killed all the boys in the crawl because he was out of town all the time in 77 and 78. Conkle in the state was basically trying to do the same thing. I bring this up now because these things never came out of trial. Neither the defense or the state ever raised the issue. So what we are left with, what potential Gacy victims' families are left with is... Silence. Silence reigns because the state doesn't want more Morghese victims discovered. The Chicago police definitely don't want more Morghese victims discovered, and neither does the Cook County Sheriff. They all want this case to be put to bed once and for all for it to become nothing more than an ugly cliff note in American history. Well, we feel quite the opposite. There were 42,000 missing person reports that were filed in Chicago between 1972 and 1978. And if there are families out there that still don't know what happened to their loved one, and if we can help supply that answer, well, then we've accomplished something that matters with this podcast. That is a real goal of ours, to advocate for victims that no one seems to be advocating for anymore. Well, almost no one. See, as we've progressed through this podcast, we've been contacted by all types of people. And one of them in particular is an amazing man who still, to this day, is fighting to uncover more Gacy victims. His name is Bill Dorsch, and he is a former Chicago police detective who has been active for decades trying to uncover what we believe is true. And that is that Gacy killed more than 33 young men. Now, you'll become very familiar with Bill Dorsch when part two of the Gacy Tapes is released down the road because we will be working very closely with Bill in our attempt to uncover what we believe to be true. Now, if you're familiar with the Gacy case beyond the Defense Diaries podcast, then you are most likely familiar with a piece of property located in Chicago at the intersection of Miami and Elston. If you've never heard of it, it's a five-unit apartment building that Gacy's mother lived in after she moved out of the creep's house in 72. Gacy was the maintenance man for that property prior to his mother moving in, and he did that job for years. All during the time that he was married to Carol, Bill has many fascinating stories about Gacy and about the Miami Elston property, and this is one of them.
2: Hi everyone, Uh, my name is Bill Dorsch. I am a retired Chicago police detective. Uh, I came out of Chicago Police Department in 1970, uh, eager to learn and do police work. And like everyone else, I started out in control. And by 1987, I was promoted to a detective assigned to Area 5 to work on homicides and police-involved shootings. So that's what I was doing until I left the job and took an early retirement in 1994. And uh, at that time I moved up to Northern Wisconsin. Um, Because we wanna talk about John Gacy, let me introduce you to how I met John Gacy. Uh, My wife at the time was working for an insurance company from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, They had an office on Devon Avenue in Park Ridge. It's right where the uh, casino is right now. Um, And she was working there as an office secretary. And one day she came home and said, uh, we're invited to dinner at this guy, John Gacy's house. And he wants us to come over and bring our son Brian. Now uh, I had never met the man before, never heard his name before, but because she wanted to go, why not? So we drove over to his home on Somerdale, the home that later became infamous for the bodies found buried at that site. Um, With uh, with Gacy, like I said, I, I hadn't met him before and I had been asked by police later when I talked about it. When I learned about Gacy being arrested for murder, I learned it through my wife who happened to call me at work and told me, hey, turn on the news, John Gacy's been arrested. Now, I I barely did know the man, and I had been at his house only one time for that dinner we were invited to. And I could pick out the year pretty much and the month pretty much because I knew my wife was pregnant with my second son at the time, who wasn't born until April. And I remember it was after the holidays, either January, February, because there was snow on the ground. Um, I remember driving into the half circular driveway, entering the one level house, and meeting with John, his wife, Carol, which was his second wife, and she had two young daughters. So it was them and me, my wife, and my son, Brian. Now, it's possible Gacy had. Uh, His mother or Carol's mother living there at the time, but they were not part of our evening. Uh, But anyway, uh, I had access to the house. He he had a family room down below, and we spent most of our time down there. Um, He had a pool table. He had a bar. He had a sofa. And we enjoyed ourselves there, and we were engaged in pleasant conversation. And later, we went up the stairs from the family room to the dining table, which uh, our my back would have been the, the family room behind me, looking towards the front of the house from where I sat. Um, I've been in thousands of homes during my career. Uh, I remember a couple of things about Gacy that, that have stuck with me. I remember on the living room wall, there was a large felt uh I, I can't really call it a painting or maybe it was painted on felt. It was a thing at the time in the 70s. You could see people selling these things on street corners. They were street scenes. And what was unusual about the felt painting was it had, in places in the artwork, they had like electrical lights that would light up on the painting, like a street light, something like that, or a house window. And I remember he had one of those paintings, a large painting on the wall, I remember also that he either had a bust or a picture of what I recall was like a Spanish conquistador, someone dressed in the battle gear, helmet, and I believe carrying like maybe two cross swords in front of his body. And those things I don't forget. But during that night, like I said, um, this is my first and only meeting at John's house. he was very congenial, asked a lot of questions. He was very interested in police work. And he knew some about me because I had recently been in a newspaper for an arrest that I had made. Um, but when we were sitting there that evening, um, I remember a pool table. And I, although I can't be certain, I don't think I would have passed up a chance to shoot pool. So I kind of think that I would have probably shot a game or two of pool. But I do remember sitting down at the bar with him because he had a bar off to the side. And while my wife was, I sat down with John at the bar that he had that was off to the side of the room. And he brought out a revolver from behind the bar. And he said, take a look at this gun, Bill. And, you know, guns are a thing I worked with every day. And I, they were a tool of my trade. I had no interest really in playing with guns. Even to this day, I'm not a big gun guy. I mean, I've used them at work, and I've had to fire them in instances, but I've never been one that likes to handle guns. They were just part of my work. So I told John, John, no need. I don't want to see the gun. I know all about guns. He put the gun away. Uh, Not long after that, during the night, he came out and said, hey, let me show you this trick, Bill. I said, sure. What is it? He says, well, I got some handcuffs. I want to put them on you. And I want to see if you can get out of them, and I will show you how what the trick is to let you get out of the handcuffs. And I, I said, John, again, I was in the academy not long ago, John. Um, I was in defensive tactics every day. They threw us all over the place. They threw handcuffs, and we were putting cuffs on other people, and they were putting them on us. And I know the trick, John. You have to have the key to get out of the handcuffs. And so. He put the handcuffs away. Did I feel threatened now that I know what he did? Um, I can tell you honestly, I don't think it was that I was in danger because my wife was there, his wife was there, and the kids were there. I think it was, you know, he wanted to just run it by me for whatever. Maybe he was practicing his thing. Anyway, we spent the rest of the night talking, as you do when you first meet people, about your work, Um, you know, and he asked me, where do I live? And I said, well, you know, I live in an apartment building just off the intersection at Elston and Miami on the northwest side of Chicago. And that's very close to where, if you know Chicago on the northwest side, it's where Elston and Milwaukee meet up there, not far from Devon Avenue. So he says, no kidding. He says, you know that there's a five-unit apartment building on Miami right around the corner from where you live that I'm, I've been taking care of that building and the maintenance there for years. And I said, wow, no kidding, John. And it wasn't much longer, maybe 1975, uh, when I'm working a tactical unit and I'm coming home. And usually we worked till two in the morning. Sometimes you stop with the guys for a beer or sometimes you stop to get a sandwich on the way home. But I recalled that on a certain date, it was about three in the morning when I turned off on of Milwaukee Avenue and I was intent on driving down uh, Miami to enter the alley to go to the rear of my building. And as I was made the turn and approaching the building that Gacy took care of was on my left. And I saw John Gacy step out from between two parked vehicles into the street as I was approaching. And I clearly identified him. So I slowed and I stopped. And he saw me and recognized me. And um, like I said, we had not had much contact. I mean, the only contact I had from the time of the party and the time he did the repair work was brief encounters when I saw him there with other young men doing work. And we had brief conversations, but nothing, nothing of importance. But on this night, when he stepped out from between the cars, he had a long handled shovel in his hand. And he walked up to me. I rolled down my window in the car and I said, John, it's three o'clock in the morning. What are you doing here? Because I knew he did not mean this, but he doesn't live here. And he sort of laughed and said, Bill, not enough hours in a day. You just got to get it done when you can. And I probably laughed. I, I And then I, I went home, and that was the end of that. Um, my wife says I told her about it. I don't recall her telling her about it. But anyway, years later, like I said, this happened in 75. In 78, I get the... Uh, <clears throat> call from my wife when I'm at work and she says, Bill, Bill, turn on the news. John Gacy is arrested. I says, what? What for? She says, they're saying he killed some people or a person. He was arrested for murder. So naturally, like everybody else, you you want to hear what's going on. And then from that day on, day, night, day, night, day, night, for months it was nothing more than the news was always about John Gacy.
0: Bill has a hell of a lot more to tell about his quest for the truth about Gacy, and all of it will be included in the book he is currently finishing up, including the sham dig that took place at Miami and Elston in 1998. And he will tell us those stories as well, but you'll have to wait for it. Just know this, between the Miami and Elston property, one West division, and the old rainbow roller rink, we're going to get some answers, finally. Even though you're long dead and gone, Gacy, we're still coming for you. Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 30. Now, before we jump back into the courtroom, I want to preface this episode by saying that we will be spending a lot of time on these motions to quash and suppress. And the reason for that is that if key evidence is suppressed, he could walk. If the arrest is quashed, he could walk. So I continue to stress to you how the motion practice phase of any criminal case is the guts and the heart and soul of the case. Because at the end of the day, the trial will boil down to one thing and one thing only. Can the defense convince the 12 men and women of the jury not to kill Gacy? Which means that they have been convinced through a battle of the experts that Gacy couldn't conform his conduct to the letter of the law, a Herculean task. Because well, an eye for an eye, is a hell of a thing. Let's dig in. We left off in court on February 16th of 1979. Amarante is in the midst of litigating his motion to quash Casey's arrest, the weed arrest on December 21st. He called Dave Hackmeister first, which initially went very well. However, it all fell apart when Amarante redirected Hackmeister after Egan's cross-examination. He broke the cardinal rule of cross-examination and asked questions he didn't know the answers to, even though he really did because Hackmeister gave the answers during his cross. Garippo's back from the break for lunch and the courtroom is already filled up and the judge is ready for the defense's next witness. Amaranti, before calling his next witness, surprises the judge that he was taken by surprise by the testimony of Hackmeister, that his second arrest for murder had occurred at 10.35 p.m which we all know coincides with the first set of bones being recovered from the crawl pursuant to the second search warrant, which had been granted earlier in the evening. Amaranti explains to the judge that he reviewed the discovery that had been delivered to him the night before by Cook County Sheriff Investigator Greg Badeau over lunch, but found no report regarding the subsequent arrest while he was already in custody at 10.35 p.m. He then informs the judge that the state has acknowledged that in fact, there is no police report that exists regarding the second arrest. Terry Sullivan stands up and lets the court know that this is in fact true, that no report regarding the second arrest was ever generated. Garippo then states on the record that defense counsel and the state had a conference back in chambers, the subject of which being that the state is having difficulty in compiling all the reports. Hmm it's starting to become more and more clear how Humber Critical Report from December 13th never made its way over to the defense. We of course now know that it was intentional, but the groundwork has now been laid by the state that they are having a hard time putting all of the police reports together. Sullivan acknowledges this fact. The judge responds by letting the state know that if the defense finds anything in any of the subsequent reports, that would give rise to reopening the matter is certainly going to allow for that to happen. Now, this is unusual. You usually get one bite at the apple as far as motions go. And remember, the judge prior to the trial does not see or review any discovery that is tendered between the parties. The only time that a judge is privy to discovery is during a hearing on a motion because whatever particular piece of discovery that is being used is entered into evidence. One other crucial piece of information you true crime sleuths out there need to know. In Illinois, police reports cannot be entered into evidence because they are hearsay. Now, there is a rule of evidence that exists that creates an exception. And in some states, they allow police reports into evidence under the business record exception. Illinois is not one of those states. The concept behind this rule is that the cop can and should be there to testify in person to what's in his report, so there's no need for that report to be put into evidence. In a situation where the cop can't recollect what was in the report, which happens pretty frequently because they are typically only reviewing a report that they may have written three years ago right before they go on the stand to testify, it is glorious for a defense attorney to know what the state is trying to get the officer to testify to and the officer just isn't making the connection. The state isn't completely screwed in this scenario because the state can ask if anything would help refresh the officer's recollection. Now, if I'm sitting at the defense table at this juncture, I know this motion is dead in the water. Garippo is getting right to the point that the second warrant, which was executed between 7 and 8 p.m. on the 21st, And this is when the human remains were discovered. Substantiates the arrest of Gacy at 10.30 on the 21st, whether there was a report or not. Badeau answers, Initially, it revealed the presence of what appeared to be human remains in the crawl space of the house. Garippo continues, And what time was this that you found what appeared to be human remains? Badeau answers, Within an hour shortly after we arrived at the house. What a gut punch for Amaranti right there. He knows, like any defense lawyer knows, when a judge starts questioning the witness himself and asking the questions you're trying to avoid asking, your motion is dead. I can only imagine the looks that Amaranti and my father were giving each other while Garippa was obliterating the defense's first motion. Amaranti decides to try and power through and try to end on a high note. He then reads verbatim language from the complaint for the search warrant of the 29th that only mentions the arrest for marijuana with no mention of the murder arrest. Amaranti gets Badeau to then testify that this is accurate, which he does. He then, in a desperate act, tries to get Badeau to give a different answer than he gave previously to whether or not Gacy had been charged with murder. Prior to Gacy giving his first statement, Badeau Doesn't bite. Question. Subsequent to giving the statement in the early morning hours of December 22nd, to your knowledge, was Mr. Gacy charged with anything? Answer. Yes, he was. Question. What was he charged with? Well, initially, he was charged with murder. Murder of who? Robert Peace. Amaranti then goes with the only theory that he has left which was that they had charged Gacy with a murder that simply put, they didn't have a body for. He ends the examination with some vague questions about jurisdiction. Badeau handles them with great aplomb. Amaranti sits down, no further questions. Now, in the same way that the defense consents when they have lost a motion, the state is every bit as aware that they have won it. So when Terry Sullivan stands to begin his, quote, cross of Badeau, he has a very different agenda than simply trying to rebut what just happened during the direct. As the fact is, he didn't really need to. Sullivan wants to clear up a couple of things that came out during Amaranti's direct of Badeau. He first asks the following Investigator Badeau, at approximately what time was the statement that you had taken from the defendant on the 22nd of December? Badeau answers that it was in the early morning hours. He would say around 2 a.m now was this after he'd spoken at some length to his attorneys yes two attorneys that's correct so you didn't speak to the defendant about the peace disappearance and or he didn't speak with you about it until such time as the defendant had already been charged by the desplaines police with the murder and he had spoken with his attorneys then you were invited into the room is that correct that's correct. Amaranti objects. Too late, as the answer had already been given, but he objects nonetheless. His objection is that Sullivan is stating a fact, not an evidence. Amaranti argues to the judge. He said after he was charged with the Displaine's murder. I think at this point in time, that question is at issue, and it's not really in evidence. Garippo interrupts him. Amaranti then finishes his sentence. He was charged after the murder. Does it make a difference? Garippo inquires of Amaranti. So it appears Garippo's ready to hear argument, maybe for expediency's sake, because he's already come to a decision. Amaranti argues the following Judge, I think the court has to look at the three things that I indicated in the opening statement. The court has to look at number one, in this particular case, whether there was any authority to arrest, which we think not based on Officer Hackmeister's testimony. Mr. Gacy was under his surveillance. He was arrested in Niles, outside of the municipal territories, as enunciated in Chapter 24 of the Illinois Statutes. He was outside of his police district. He was not in hot pursuit. That's the authority argument. Secondly, I think the court has to determine whether there was probable cause for the arrest. I think that what are the circumstances and facts here, if there was probable cause, certainly any action wasn't taken until some three hours later. The whole purpose then boils down to the underlying reasons for the arrest, the underlying reasons of the custodial situation, the underlying reasons for the initial detention. Had they been for the arrest based on whether they had authority or whether it was probable cause, and if they didn't have authority, had they been acting as ordinary citizens, Mr. Gacy would have been brought either to the Niles Police Department where he was arrested or he would have been brought to the Park Ridge Police Department, where the offense took place. Garippo then cuts through the circular argument when he asks Amaranti, does it make any difference what time he was told that he was under arrest for murder? Amaranti responds, I think it does, judge, because when you look at the doctrine of Wong's son, which is the fruit of the poisonous tree, I think it determines it. The state is apparently attempting to bring out some type of intervening cause in the form of a search warrant, and delivery of cannabis charge. We are stating that the search warrant in effect as part of that entire totality of the circumstances. Amaranti said just enough. Not sure what it meant, but the judge lets Sullivan continue to question Badeau. Sullivan asks Badeau, you've been assigned to this case since the 13th of December, is that correct? Badeau answers, that's correct. Sullivan continues, and your responsibilities have been to work with the Des Police Department and coordinating things for the state's attorney's office. Is that correct? Badeau answers in the affirmative. And would it be fair to say that this investigation consumed or has consumed since the 13th of December virtually your entire workload? That's correct, Badeau answers. Okay, do you know of your own knowledge, investigator, the fact that there were no statements, in fact, taken from the defendant in relation to the murder investigation until such time as the skeletons had been uncovered in his home. Yes, I know that for a fact, Badeau answers confidently. Sullivan then changes gears. Now, in relation to the search warrant, if we may refer to the one that you signed, the complaint for the search warrant is search warrant number five, the fifth, and the last of the search warrants, is that correct? Badeau confirms that fact. Sullivan then refers back to Amaranti's reading of the complaint for the warrant. Now, Mr. Amaranti brought up in your last complaint that you stated the defendant was in custody for the possession of marijuana. Was that correct? Bedouin agrees. Sullivan continues, as the statement further states that while in custody for the offense and after consulting with his attorneys and after having been advised of his constitutional rights against self-incrimination, John Gacy made statements to officers of the Displaines Police Department and the Cook County Sheriff's Police. Confessing that he had killed a 15 year old Desplaines boy named Robert Peace on the night of December 11, 1978, at his home and subsequently disposed of the body of Robert Peace by dropping it off the bridge into the Desplaines River. Is that correct? Badeau once again confirms. Sullivan pushes forward. In fact, Investigator Badeau, when this search warrant was drawn up on December 29, 1978, on page two of the three pages, you allege in it the fact that 23 human bodies had been found at the time that this had been drawn up. Isn't that correct? Yes, it is, Badeau answers firmly. Now, is there any doubt in your mind, investigator Badeau, at the time that you signed this, that in fact, Mr. Gacy was being held for murder? No, Badeau states without hesitation. So with that particular aspect of the motion handled in the sense that Sullivan was able to clarify for the record, not for Garippo, as he clearly had a grasp on the issues before him, the cross of Badeau takes a very strange turn. And here's a pause for a worthy cause. Bombas' mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you are also giving to someone in need. Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on it. Every day, everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless. Oh, that's amazing. And has a luxuriously cozy feel. They're made from super soft materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere. What? Which makes them the perfect cozy winter layers. So far, Bamba's customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. How cool is that, D? How many items? 50 million, man. That's a lot of items, Bob. I mean, do you understand what's going on with these folks? You buy clothes from them. They, in turn, donate clothes to the needy, man. I mean. 50 million times. To the tune of 50 million. I mean, that, that's like, that's real. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's real. Definitely. So go to Bombas.com slash defense and get 20% off any purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com Slash defense for 20% off bombas.com slash defense. Hey, Bob, yo, is that a forward slash or a backslash? I think that's a backslash, homie. Okay, just making sure. Yep. Thanks, man. Glad you asked. Glad you answered. With Hello Fresh, you get farm fresh, pre portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on Hello Fresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. So HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality. And you can save on average over 65 bucks a month when you order HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping. That's more money to put towards your other 2022 goals. Dude, what do you think of that? Um, 72% cheaper and 65 bucks a month? Sold? Yeah. Yeah. S- Sign me up. No question. To and my doorstep. Yeah. I mean, dude, it's unbelievable. Because uh, as much as I love the grocery store, and I mean love <laughs> the grocery store, to my doorstep, that sounds closer. Dude, that's money. That sounds I mean, way closer. There's just nothing better than that. And, you know, it's like the bottom line with me is I've we, we, you know, we've we been sponsored by HelloFresh on, on many episodes. And, you know, I'm always raving about them. And, I mean, everything's super fresh. Everything is delicious. And the recipes are always different. Like I, I never have gotten a shipment where I'm getting repetitive recipes. So it's always a mixture of great, great food. It's always easy to prepare, and like I'm, I'm a really, really big fan of it. And it really does make my life so, so much easier. It's a little zest to your life, you it, know. It does, and Where's as like a matter of fact, there's quite a few recipes where I actually have to zest, you know, citrus lemons, type things, limes, things of that nature. Which, I'm a big fan of the zest. So, I'm glad you mentioned that, man. That's, you know, you're always on top of it, It man. It wasn't an accident, Mom. Yeah, dude, you're on top of it, man. So, go to com slash Defense 16 and use code Defense 16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Three free gifts. Three free gifts. What are they? So, go to com slash Defense 16 and use code Defense 16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. So go ahead, get your order on, go to hellofresh.com and start eating America's number one meal kit. For us examining this case 43 years after the fact and knowing what we know now about the receipt and what we believe happened with buyers, this next exchange takes on an entirely new meaning one in which the participants in the courtroom, other than Sullivan and Badeau, have no idea why it's happening. It really is incredible to be able to see exactly how the wool was pulled over the court, the defense team, the press, and the public's eyes. Keep in mind that when I refer to the record, I'm referring to the appellate record. That is the reason that the court reporter is taking down every word that is spoken during hearings and trials because it is these matters where issues are found and are litigated when trying to get a court's decision overturned. Sullivan's next question to Bedeau is as follows. Now, investigator Bedeau, during the investigation, was a young lady by the name of Kim Byers spoken to? Yes, answers Bedeau. Sullivan follows with, I believe the spelling is B-Y-E-R-S. Bedeau confirms the spelling. Now, I want you to recall on January 30th, the photo receipt was injected into the case as the inventory of things seized in the search was prepared by Kozensak and was filed in open court and was made a part of the record. Sullivan continues, during the conversation of speaking with Kim Byers, did she advise as to the fact that she was working? My father objects, as to foundation, asking at what point in time, not as to relevance which would have been the proper objection because this alleged conversation has absolutely nothing to do with what is before the court at the present time, namely the motion to quash the arrest. Garippo sustains the objection, which means that he agrees with the objecting party and that this issue must be cured, and instructs Sullivan to, quote, fix the time on it. Sullivan, doing as instructed, asks Bideau, Between the time or the disappearance of the peace boy and the execution of the second search warrant, was there a conversation held with a young lady by the name of Kim Byers? Badeau stunningly answers, yes, there was. Now, wait a minute here. Somehow this has gone from Byers giving a statement to police officers to now she is giving the information to Badeau. I have read you the report from this interview previously verbatim, and it was unequivocally Detective Adams of the Displaines Police Department that interviewed Byers, not once, but twice on December 12th, which was a day before Badeau was assigned to the case, as he testified to earlier. Now, in Illinois and in many jurisdictions, police officers from within the same agency can adopt and testify to what other officers may have learned during their investigations and have written in their own reports under the doctrine of collective knowledge. So, this means that one cop can testify to what another cop learned. However, this does not mean that a cop can testify as if they are the person with the firsthand knowledge, which is exactly what Badeau is doing, acting as if it was him and not Adams that had interviewed buyers. Further, Badeau works with the Cook County Sheriff's Police, not the Desplaines Police Department, different agency. Now, if you're asking why in the hell didn't the defense scorch him and call him out on this fact, the answer is that because all that discovery that hasn't been tendered yet by the state included the reports by Adams regarding his interview with Byers. Now, while Garippo has stated that when the defense does get all the discovery, if any issues arise relating to this particular hearing, it can be brought back up. But the reality is the damage is already done. Remember, you can't unring a bell. Let's get back to it. My father objects again, stating that they need to know on what day the conversation is alleged to have taken place. Garippo overrules the objection and lets Sullivan continue. Where did she work, investigator? At Nissan Drugstore, Badeau answers plainly. And did you likewise know that Robert Peast had worked at that drugstore? Yes, I did. Sullivan pauses briefly. Now, the date the Monday that Robert Peace disappeared. Was Kim Byers working? Badeau confirms that she was. Do you recall what time Kim Byers advised the investigators that Robert Peace's mother came to pick him up? Sullivan inquires. Clearly having been prepared by Sullivan prior to taking the stand, Badeau answers precisely. Ten minutes to nine, that evening, the evening of December 11th, Okay, did Kim Byers tell you approximately what time Robert Peast left the store? Badeau responds. Then a few minutes of nine o'clock, that evening. Sullivan carefully asks the next question. Did Kim Byers advise the police department? Notice he didn't say you, meaning Badeau. What Robbie Peast had said to Kim before he left the store? Now, there should be an objection by the defense here to the answer being not just hearsay, but double hearsay. He's asking for an out-of-court statement made by buyers about a statement made by Piest. That's double hearsay. But, and that is because in Illinois, hearsay is allowed in a motion to suppress hearing. It's unusual, but it's true. So with no objections pending, Badeau answers, yes, she did. With seemingly free reign to ask whatever he wants, Sullivan continues, well, what did Robbie say to her? Amaranti stands and firmly objects. Now it's a mini, it's your favorite time, it's my favorite time. It's what the hell do objections during trials mean time. Anytime that one of the attorneys believes that a rule of evidence has been violated or will be violated by opposing counsel, or that a statement or particular piece of evidence is inadmissible, the opposing party must object and give the basis of that objection in order for two things to happen. First, for the judge to make a ruling, remember, the judge is the gatekeeper of what comes in and what stays out of evidence. And two, in order to create a record for appeal. If counsel fails to object at a hearing or a trial, the issue is considered waived by the appellate court. So when the appellate lawyer, who is typically a different lawyer than who handled the case, sees that an objection should have been made at a certain juncture, but wasn't, he's screwed and cannot raise that issue at all. So objections, which can be annoying for the jury and for the attorney conducting the examination, are an absolutely necessary evil within the judicial process. Oh. And objecting to break up a lawyer's flow during an examination is a super effective way to fuck with them. Two birds! Birds. Lesson over. Amaranti then goes into what is referred to as a speaking objection, which means he goes far beyond merely stating what the basis of the objection is, but also makes argument as to why he's correct. Many judges abhor speaking objections. Garippo apparently is not one of them. Amaranti continues, Judge, I think we're going too far afield. Our direct examination concerned the custodial situation, a detention period. Now, we're all the way to the beginning of the investigation. I don't see what the materiality is to the questioning. I think we are going on questioning regarding the first warrant. My questioning didn't involve the first search warrant. So it's basically a relevance or a beyond the scope of direct objection that the defense is making. Sullivan responds, Well, Judge, we're talking about five search warrants at the same time here. What I'm attempting to show is what was in the knowledge of the police department, of the investigator, prior to the issuance of certain search warrants. Now that we're hearing apparently all of the search warrants at the same time, it's just a matter of if the objection would be sustained. We would then call Investigator Badeau as our witness. He is certainly subject to cross-examination. Amaranti replies, Your Honor, if I may, perhaps counsel is misled. I don't know. We are combining the second warrant with the motion to quash arrest. Garippo chimes in. First, second, and arrest. Amaranti then attempts to correct the judge. No, the first warrant, judge, will be the subject of Mr. Mata's legal argument. Garippo then addresses Amaranti's statement. All right, the thrust of your motion to quash the arrest is the fact that this arrest, the arrest on the marijuana, is perhaps a sham. So actually, these facts go to show either, number one, whether or not it was in fact a sham, or whether maybe they had probable cause to make an arrest on the murder, or if they didn't. Amaranti interrupts Garippo mid-sentence. I withdraw my objection. Garippo is surprised by this. You withdraw your objection? Okay. What? With that, Sullivan continues to question Badeau. What, if anything, did Robbie Peace say to her? Badeau takes a deep breath, then answers. Robbie Peace said to her, I will be right back, and made reference to going outside to speak to a contractor about a job. Sullivan then continues to question Badeau about the rest of Adam's report regarding his two interviews with buyers. You've heard them. But in a nutshell, Sullivan gets into evidence that Byers had stated that she knew that Gacy was some sort of contractor and that she had a conversation with Mrs. Peast wherein Mrs. Peast had told her that she had arrived to pick Robbie up and that Robbie approached her and said that he'd be back in a few minutes after he spoke to the contractor about a summer job that was going to pay five to six bucks an hour. Sullivan then asks Badeau if he had a conversation with Gacy while he was in the station on the 13th which Badeau confirms, wherein Gacy confirms that he had been in the store twice that evening, first at 7.30 p.m., and then again at 8.50 p.m. Sullivan then asks that prior to the time that the second warrant was issued, that all of the information that he just testified to was known. Badeau concurs. At this point, the Kim Byers narrative is officially injected into the case. It would be this story that Kim Byers would testify to at trial, keeping in mind that this account of what they are claiming happened doesn't appear in any police report ever. And there is one reason for that. It never happened. Sullivan looks at Badeau and asks him, furthermore, after speaking with Kim Byers, Investigator Badeau, were you advised that she had been using any of Robbie Peace apparel while working at the drugstore? Badeau responds. "Yes." Yeah, she stated at one point that evening, she wore Robbie Peace's jacket. Here it comes, folks. And did she likewise advise the investigators that she had placed anything inside of Robbie Peace's jacket? Sullivan very carefully asks Badeau. Notice that he used the term investigators as opposed to you or Detective Adams. That's called plausible deniability in the event that shit blows up in their face. Badeau answers, yes, she did. What? Sullivan asks. Badeau, in what we can only imagine was a thoroughly discussed answer to this particular question, states the following. She stated that during the course of the evening, she filled out a film deposit envelope in her own name, and placed an undeveloped roll of film inside of it, tore the receipt off at the end of the envelope, and placed that receipt in the pocket of the jacket that she was wearing. Sullivan continues to establish the buyer's work of fiction. Did she advise you as to the time period that evening when Robbie Peast had retrieved that jacket from her? Bado replies Robbie Peast retrieved the jacket as he was leaving Nissan drugstore that evening shortly before 9 o'clock. Sullivan presses on. Now, prior to the second search warrant, you were in possession of the knowledge that Robbie Peast had a jacket, was wearing a jacket that evening that had inside of it a Nissan Pharmacy photo receipt. Is that correct? That's correct, Badeau states, without batting an eye. Sullivan now makes the connection between Gacy, the receipt, and Peast. And prior to the issuance of the second search warrant you are likewise in possession of the information that a customer receipt number 36119 from nissan drugstore was recovered from the garbage of john gacy's residence is that correct in order to wrap up the story with a tidy little bow sullivan asks you likewise were in possession of information that a check with respect to the pharmacy showed that, in fact, that it was the same receipt that Kim Byers had signed out for on the same date in question, correct? While the question as asked by Sullivan is barely intelligible, we know from Officer Pakel's report that on December 19th, him and Adams went to Nissan to grab the logbook to make sure to verify that it was, in fact, Kim Byers' receipt. Now, remember that this is the first that the judge, the defense attorneys, or the public is hearing of the quote, details of how the cops are claiming they made the connection between Peast and Gacy. And this would become the story for the next 43 years. Sullivan has bitten the bullet and gotten the buyer's narrative to the point where he has now set it in stone, which serves two purposes. First, it gives an offer of proof regarding the receipt story that was contained in the complaint for the second warrant. And more importantly, it locks Kim Byers into having to regurgitate this exact story at trial. She will have no other option. For the record, I am not at all surprised that it was Terry Sullivan that handled this portion of the hearing. I mean, who else could it have been Sullivan then moves on to question Badeau about Gacy's sodomy conviction in Iowa, about the handcuffs and the police badges and a bottle of chloroform they found during the search on the 13th. He then questions Badeau about law enforcement being aware of the creep being arrested and charged with the abduction of another young man in Chicago prior to the issuance of the second warrant, which, as we know, was Jeff Rignall. Badeau confirms it all. Amiranti objects, stating that if they had all of this information, that it should have been stated in the complaint for the second warrant. But it wasn't. He's not wrong. But at this point, this is like a burning car wreck, which no one, including the judge, can peel their eyes away from. These details are just too juicy. The press is writing feverishly in their notebooks, sucking it all in. Garippo states that he is not aware of any case authority that allows for the type of bolstering of an otherwise defective warrant that Sullivan is currently attempting to accomplish. But there still appears to be a lot of confusion as to exactly which motion they are currently litigating, which, frankly, is unsettling. Based on what Garippo says, Amaranti once again withdraws his objection. Why? I'll never know. This, of course, allows Sullivan to continue to basically reveal the entirety of the investigation and get it on the record through Badeau. He covers the original contact at Gacy's house on the 12th by Kozenzak. He covers the fact that Gacy didn't show up as promised to the police department until 3 a.m. When he does, he's covered in mud. He then reappears at the station and makes a statement. And while he's there, the first search of the house takes place, which... They find, among other things that have been previously discussed, driver's license of young men, a starter gun with blanks, a 2x4 with holes in each end of it, Zick's class ring, buyer's photo receipt, nope, and a length of rope with what appears to be a human hair attached to it. Badeau confirms it all. Sullivan then gets into Johnny Bukovich and how they learned on the 15th of December that he was missing and was a former employee of Gacy's as was Gregory Godsick. He then covers the fact that Rossi, a Gacy employee, was driving around in Zick's car for a year and a half after Gacy had signed the title over to Rossi. He also asks about Cram telling law enforcement that he found multiple wallets containing identifications in the garage, which Gacy told him belonged to dead people. He also asks about the watches of dead people that he gave to Cram. He also asks about Zick's television being in Gacy's room. Once again, Badeau confirms all of it. Sullivan takes his seat. Mission accomplished. Amarante now has the opportunity to just grill the fuck out of Badeau. This is gonna be good. Let's hear it. Investigator Badeau, all of this knowledge you had, all of this information that you had which Mr. Sullivan just asked you about, was available to you prior to you preparing the second search warrant, was it not? Yes, it was, Badeau answers. Amaranti continues, and in fact, you prepared the second search warrant, correct? Badeau thinks for a moment. Well, I assisted in the preparation of it, yes. Who signed it? I believe Detective Kozenzak signed it. (sighs) <sighs> Amaranti's just getting warmed up. With all this information, investigator, and all the knowledge that you had in your investigation beginning on December 12th with Ms. Byers and ending on December 21st, when you were preparing the second search warrant, all that information you had was prior to the time of Mr. Gacy's arrest for possession or delivery of marijuana. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Amaranti goes on. And with all that information and all that knowledge, the only thing he was arrested for at 12 noon on December 21st was the possession or delivery of marijuana. Isn't that correct? Bado considers the question. Yes, at 1215, that's what he was arrested for. Oh, it's getting good. Amaranti walks back to council table and sits down. No further questions. What? Instead of releasing the witness, Garippo has some questions of his own. Yeah, I I would think so. Garippo asks Badeau, was the knowledge you had available to the officers of Displanes who were working on this investigation? Badeau answers, not all the investigators, I'm sure were aware of all of the information. Garippo inquires further, well, what investigators would you say were aware of all of the investigation? Badeau no pauses. Myself and Lieutenant Kozenczak. Boy oh boy, if Garippo knew just exactly how true that statement was, there would have been a much different result to this case. Garippo asks, what about Sergeant Lang? Badeau answers, Sergeant Lang wasn't in the station all that much. He was involved in the surveillance itself. And we know that the surveillance team was in the dark about nearly everything, other than the creep's whereabouts for 10 days. Garippo, at this point, is done asking questions. Amaranti inquires whether he could ask a couple more questions based on what the judge just asked. Garippo allows it. Amaranti takes the opportunity to basically confirm that both Kozenzak and Badeau had knowledge of everything that he just testified to, yet it was still not put in the complaint for the search warrant, the second warrant. Amaranti takes a seat. He's done. I mean, sometimes less is more. Not so sure about on this occasion though. Garippo excuses Badeau, who steps down from the stand. At that point, Amaranti states that the defense rests on its motion to quash the arrest of 12.15 p.m. on December 21st. That means they're done. Carrippo asks the state if they have any evidence to present. Egan tells the judge that they want to call Officer Schultz. Schultz makes his way to the stand, and he is then direct examined by Egan. The thrust of the testimony is that Schultz and Robinson were invited into Gacy's home on two separate occasions, and during the second time in Gacy's home, that when he was in Gacy's bathroom and the heat kicked on, he smelled putrefied flesh. Schultz then testifies on the 21st that around noon, that he had the occasion to speak with David Cram, who was driving Gacy around during the morning hours, and that Cram informed him that Gacy had told him he had admitted to his lawyers in the early morning hours of the 21st that he had killed possibly 30 victims, and that he was afraid that Gacy was suicidal. Man, Amaranti must have loved hearing those words. Wait, did I say that out loud? Egan finishes up with Schultz, and Amaranti gets his turn to cross-examine him. He first questions him that it wasn't until after the alleged conversation with Kram at noon, some three hours after the weed exchange, that Gacy was arrested. Schultz concurs. Amaranti then switches to the smell in the house. Again, this is confusing because this subject matter is not related to the motion to quash the arrest, but instead it relates to the motion to quash the second warrant. But I digress. He first establishes with Schultz that he had been in the house on two prior occasions, on December 14th and the 17th, and Schultz admits that on neither of those occasions did he smell decaying flesh. He then gets Schultz to confirm that he smelled the rotting flesh on the 19th at around 7 p.m., and further gets him to confirm that he understood how important this investigation was, especially to his boss, Lieutenant Kozenczak. Yet, for some reason despite this fact he didn't tell Kozenczak about the smell for two days. Now we know based on our conversations with Carl Humbert who was actually in the crawl on December 13th and did not smell decaying flesh why he didn't tell Kozenczak on the 19th. Yeah that's right. It's because he didn't smell decaying flesh on the 19th. Amaranti then asks him several questions regarding other items that when rotting may smell like decaying flesh, specifically vegetables and animals, neither of which, of course, were in the crawl. Not sure why he didn't just end the cross with the fact that he didn't have the alleged conversation with Kozenczak for two days after he was supposed to have smelled it. You know, end on a high note. Amaranti ends the examination of Schultz. Egan then redirects him a bit, being wise enough not to bring up the two-day gap again but instead asks about the overall musty smell in the house. And with that, the state rests. So at this point, both sides make their argument to the judge. Amaranti goes first. He first makes the argument that displays police didn't have the authority to arrest Gacy because they were outside of their jurisdiction and were not in hot pursuit. He cites a couple of cases that support his position. He then moves on to the fact that the arrest was merely a pretextual arrest, a sham, to get Gacy into custody. And despite the fact that Badeau testified, they allegedly had all of this information that he testified to, that they did not have an arrest warrant, nor did they even have a complaint for a second warrant done until seven hours after Gacy was in custody. He then slips into the argument about quashing the warrant of the 21st arguing that Badeau stated that he was given the information about the receipt from buyers on December 12th. But he fails to mention that that would have been impossible considering that Badeau had testified that he wasn't even assigned to the case until the 13th. Devil's in the details. But he does point out that if they had had that information, that potential smoking gun connection between Peast and Gacy, that it was not included for the complaint for search warrant on the 13th, which remember, must state specifically what you were searching for. And further, when they used the receipt as the primary piece of evidence to get the second warrant, that they failed to attach a copy of the inventory from the first search to the second complaint. Oh my God, they were so close to unearthing the secret at this exact moment, but remember, the defense never saw Humbert's report from the 13th, which didn't include the receipt. They had, at this point, however, seen Kozenzak's inventory, which was filed on December 30th. So that is what Amoranti is referring to. He then moves on to the smell, but instead of focusing on the absurd two-day gap between when Schultz claims to have smelled it and when he allegedly tells Kozenzak, he focuses on the fact that Schultz admitted that it could have been something else creating the smell. In his defense, however, neither Amarante nor my father knew that Humbert or his report from the 13th existed. So they couldn't have known to call him to challenge either the existence of their seat or the smell or lack thereof in the crawl. Now, Amarante, while it appears that he is arguing the wrong motion, is in fact arguing that all of these facts that law enforcement purportedly had regarding the potential criminal activity by Gacy did not cut the mustard to be included within the complaint for the second search warrant, which speaks to the fact that they did not have probable cause for the murder arrest, so they conducted the illegal sham arrest for the weed simply to give them the opportunity to try and secure a second warrant while Gacy was in custody, and potentially more information from Gacy himself. Amaranti argues the taint from the first illegal arrest for the weed has contaminated everything that occurred after. Amaranti ends his argument with the following statement. I know that the courts sometimes consider good police work based merely on gut reaction, suspicion, belief, or hopeful conclusion but that cannot always be considered reasonable. And that's why this court, regardless of the nature of the charges, cannot look back and justify a search by what is recovered. That is why this court, under other circumstances, cannot look back and condemn a search because of what is not recovered. But that is why this court must follow the rules laid down by our forefathers in the Constitution mandates laid down by the Supreme Court of the United States and all the cases and the standard is one of reasonableness. Because if this court does not follow that standard of reasonableness as laid down in the Constitution in the Fourth Amendment and the Illinois Constitution, not just John Gacy sitting here, but every man, including your honor, counsel here, myself, the people in this courtroom, every man can expect... You know, if you make one exception, one exception to the rule laid down by the court, one exception to the reasonableness standard, every man can expect to open his house up to tyranny, to intrusion, to open his heart up to fear, to close his eyes to freedom. I suggest, Judge, if we made that type of exception here, no matter how heinous the charges may be, no matter how serious the nature of the charges may be, I think it's taking the first step on the road to government intrusion that can be more powerful, more frightening than any one individual man can ever make. That's the type of floodgate that is opening up in a case like this, Your Honor. And I respectfully submit to Your Honor that this is our argument on the motion. Now, that's a pretty strong argument. And if this was a misdemeanor weed case, Gacy would probably walk but when you have 29 young men's lives that you've been accused of ending, there doesn't exist an argument in the world that is going to allow Grippo to find that the arrest was illegal, which would ultimately result in cutting Gacy loose. That's not happening. At this point, Bill Kunkel rises from the state's table to respond. He first addresses the territory issue. He argues that the defense is arguing that there was no hot pursuit or exigent circumstances. The state believes that there certainly were. As the court has heard from the plain, uncontradicted, uncontroverted, and unassailed testimony on these motions, the possible potential or remaining life of Robert Peast was very much at stake at this point. The life of John Gacy may well have been at stake at this point, and certainly, the safety of David Cram was at stake at this point. Based on the foregoing, Desplaines had the authority to make the arrest. Counsel continually refers to the arrest on the marijuana charge as subterfuge. With all due respect, Your Honor, I think that's ludicrous. First of all, to argue from the facts as we see them subsequent to that arrest, it was a damn poor one, because nothing flowed from it. Nothing flowed from it. The second search warrant was issued based upon the entire contents of of the first complaint for search warrant, which was attached to, referred to, incorporated by, and referenced to two. The second search warrant, which was issued based upon the entire contents of the first complaint for search warrant, which was attached to, referred to, and incorporated by, and made a part of the complaint for the second search warrant. In addition to all the facts contained in that document, were the added factors of the Nissan Pharmacy slip recovered on the first search warrant, which at that time, and as discussed in the complaint of the second search warrant, had in fact been tied through Kim to the pocket of Rob Peace' jacket as he left Nissan Pharmacy on December 11th, 1978, at approximately 9 o'clock p.m. The final piece of evidence, or fact, that set forth, and that was the opinion that Officer Schultz testified to concerning his observations in the house on the 19th of December, that being what he believed to be the smell of putrefying bodies. I suggest to the court that taken together, those things with regard to the argument concerning the second warrant is certainly sufficient probable cause for the issuance of that warrant. There is nothing in the complaint for the second warrant that relates in any way, shape, or form to the custody, the detention, or the arrest of John Gacy at 10.30 p.m. on the night of December 21st. Based on all the probable cause, the court has heard introduced into this record, could they have acted earlier to affect the arrest on the murder? Could they have arrested him at 12.30 in the afternoon, leaving DeLeo's restaurant for murder as well as the marijuana possession? Could they have done it at three o'clock? Could they have done it in the morning the day before? Perhaps so, but that no way detracts from their right to do it as they did it in the arrests for marijuana at 12.30, under arrest and charged for murder at 10.30 p.m. If this court believes that there was something wrong with that arrest at 12.15, and I don't think that there was anything wrong with it, what physical evidence, what statements, what oral statements, what search warrant complaint could this court possibly suppress based on such a finding? None, because nothing came of it. Nothing came of that custody. There was no taint because there was nothing to taint. The taint doesn't exist. The prejudice doesn't exist. These defense counsel on behalf of the defendant are asking this court to suppress something that is not there. A lawful arrest was made at 1215 for possession of marijuana. It is our position that the police officers made it with probable cause and with good authority. At 10.30 p.m., after human remains were found in the basement of the defendant, the defendant was placed under arrest and charged face-to-face with the crime of murder. After that time, certain statements were made. Lastly, Your Honor, I asked the court, with the exception, though we still have to litigate the probable cause aspects of the first warrant, that, with that aside or accepted arguendo, I asked the court to accept the second search warrant as valid on its face and within the four corners of that warrant, certainly stating probable cause for it to be issued and that the materials were covered based on the issuance of that warrant not be suppressed. With that, Bill Kunkel sits down. Now it's Garippo's turn to do the talking. He first explains that it was his intention to give a written opinion, but due to the fact that he thought that there would be more witnesses testifying than actually did testify, he's now in a position to make a ruling from the bench, which he in fact does. The motion is entitled the motion to quash arrest and suppress evidence. I have always stated that there is no motion in law as a motion to quash arrest. The court only makes a determination as to the validity of the arrest. When the court has determined whether or not evidence seized as a result of an unlawful arrest is subject to suppression. So when the defense rested and I asked the questions About what happened between 12.15 and 7.30 PM when the defendant was in the hospital, in the police station, and before being brought to the hospital, nothing was alleged to have happened. As I see it, at this point, it would be a gratuitous act on my part to designate the legality of the arrest because, as Mr. Conkle put it, nothing has flowed from the arrest. The statement apparently is the only thing that occurred after the arrest, which is evidence that might possibly be suppressed. And that occurred several hours after his initial arrest at 1215 in the afternoon and several more hours after he had been brought to the hospital and then returned from the hospital. He had been in the presence of his attorney. He had been warned by his attorney not to say anything. And in the presence of his attorney, and against the advice of counsel and he apparently, at least from what I have before me, makes a voluntary statement. The officers certainly had a lot of probable cause to place the defendant under arrest at 12.15 p.m. on the murder. See, the officers were making every attempt apparently to act in a lawful manner. They had information of another crime, certainly relatively minor compared with the case that they were investigating. However, they were aware of their responsibilities. They didn't want to do anything wrong to jeopardize the very important investigation. They didn't want to move too fast. But even at that point, they certainly had sufficient evidence to tie sufficient probable cause to tie him in with the disappearance of the peace boy. And then after the statement that Schultz received from the witness at the restaurant, he had sufficient evidence, sufficient reasons to arrest him for the investigation of the murder as well but I don't see under this motion that I'm even called upon to render an opinion about the arrest, which I would be happy to do, but I don't think it's necessary that I do it. So as to the motion to quash arrest, which I, again, I don't think there is such a motion, I am making a finding that there is no showing that the arrest of John Gacy at 12.15 p.m. is in any way connected with his statement 13 hours later in the presence of his attorney and against the advice of his attorney. So the motion to suppress evidence will be denied. So there it is. The motion to quash, which Garippo says isn't a real thing, so he's referring to it as a motion to suppress, has now been denied. That is one less thing for the state to worry about. Now at this point, it has gotten late in the day. So Garippo is calling it and schedules the motion to quash the search warrants dated December 13th and December 21st, to be heard on February 23rd. The old man is arguing these motions, and I'm anxious to hear it. But much like the hearing on this day, this episode's getting long on the tooth. So we will hear the litigation of the most important motion in the Gacy case on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, rate, and review our pod on Apple and Spotify. Yes, you can finally rate on Spotify. And if you just can't stand the ads, well, go ahead and join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash defense diaries. And finally, thank you all for spreading the word about the pod. It's so important for us. And most of all, thank you for listening. Because without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. He's an case talk at you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. You know, we know exactly where the body's at.